Well, good morning. It's uh, definitely a privilege for me to be back at Christ Community Church and to uh, be given the opportunity to serve you uh, by preaching the Word of God. And so if you have brought your Bible with you, I want to invite you to go to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation and chapter 19. And honestly, the entire time that I've spent uh, preaching and training for ministry, I have completely put off preaching anything from Revelation. It's a difficult book, but at the same time, uh, there's so much here for us that the Lord would have us to know. But I do want to start off by saying that the passage that we're dealing with this morning is one that's heavy, and not only is it heavy, it's sobering. And it would do us well to think about that, so that way when we approach it, we don't just come across looking at God's Word just merely in an academic way, but that we would look at God's Word in a sobering way, something that does something and produces something in us. And I want to give you an example of why I'm saying this. The passage that we're dealing with today is referring to the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back to this world and he sets all things straight, and the reason why that's encouraging as a Christian is we know that it's the glorious appearing of Christ, but then at the same time, it will be terrible for those who are outside of Christ. And if we approach it in just merely an academic way, we lose a sense of soberness and compassion. We lose a sense of having eternity on our eyes and seeing how that affects everything around us. Because I know when I think about that day, my mind goes to a few places. The first one is, yes, in Christ there's victory as a believer. But then at the same time, I think of my family members, I think of my neighbors, my co-workers, and how that day is not going to be a joyful day, but a day that they need to be spared from. But then the other way to view it, if you're here this morning and you are outside of Christ, you're not trusting in Him is to not just brush it off. Because I remember growing up in church and hearing so many times pastors preaching on the day that Jesus would return to the world. And even one time in particular, I remember an older man walking up to a pastor and he said, you know, I've been hearing that my whole life. I've been told that by many preachers and you know if that was going to happen, it would have happened by now. Look, God's word is certain and you can't afford to just brush it off as something that we talk about but might not actually happen. So my goal before we read our passage is that we would seek the Lord's help in prayer for the purpose not only of understanding his word, but that the spirit would give us an urgency concerning his word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to come to hear your word. And Lord, I do pray that there would be a strong sense in which your word produces a compassion and a soberness, not only in myself, but in each person here. Lord, your word is sure. It's true. Everything in here is for our good. And honestly, I wouldn't go out of my way to preach a passage like Revelation 19 if I really didn't feel and know that you would have people to be warned of that day that is coming. It's not a joy to preach this, but it is in your word and it's serious and we need to know it. 
So God, I pray that we would have an urgency concerning this day, not only concerning our own soul, but also the souls of others, knowing that when Christ comes, he's going to come in complete victory, and that's, the, and that's it. So Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would draw near towards us, that you would bless us, and that your spirit would truly work in our life this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The title of this sermon is Salvation, or sorry, Judgment, Salvation, and Victory. Let's start in verse 1 of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, Those are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it, for I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I saw heaven standing opened, there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf, 
With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. I wasn't joking when I said that we have a heavy passage. When you read Revelation 19 and you take account of everything that's being spoken here, there is some extreme imagery. There's some things that we look at and just it almost seems to surpass our imagination of what it will be like when Christ returns. So then the question is this. When we deal with the book of Revelation, what is the best way to understand all of that? What is the best way to look at the book of Revelation and actually understand what is going on and what it's speaking of when this great and final day comes? The book of Revelation is a symbolic book. It uses images and pictures and visions to explain a very real reality. So for us, when we look at Revelation, and what I want to do today, because this is more overview than anything, is to look at chapter 19 in the themes that the author prevents, uh, sorry, presents. Because when we understand it in its themes, we understand exactly the point of what the author is trying to get across. And the two themes that we have this morning are this. Theme number one is that God is glorified in his judgments. And theme two, that God is glorified in salvation. When we think about God being glorified in his judgments, we see the people that are going to fall under this event, don't we? We're given the prostitute. We're given the kings and the armies of this world. Then the beast and then the false prophet. And all of these people or characters, they all fall under that day when Christ returns. You might remember the Gospel of John. It speaks about it, doesn't it? In John chapter 5, it says in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all will hear his voice. Speaking of when Christ returns to the earth. And then it says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of death. They're all dealt with in that event in Christ appearing. But then on the same hand, God is also glorified in his salvation. This passage isn't just about judgment only. There is hope that's given, isn't there? Theme number two is that God is glorified in salvation. And what we find is in the beginning of Revelation 19, this is just a summary before we dive in, is that salvation and power and glory belong to our God. That's our hope this morning. The second one is that the marriage supper is actually for God's people. It's something that we're invited to. It's something that we, where we don't fall under his judgment. And then the number three is the armies of heaven. Just like his saints are clothed in fine linen, his army from heaven is clothed in the same way. So in that respect, let's start with God being glorified in judgment and really see how Revelation 19 fleshes out and also where it leads us on how we should respond. So starting with God being glorified in judgment, each person here is given to us and we're going to look at their introduction, what their evil is, and then ultimately what their end is. Starting with the prostitute. If you have your Bible, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. 
And I really want everyone to turn to these references because it's helpful for us to see them. Revelation 14.8 is where we are first introduced with the prostitute, and this is what it says. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Notice that in Revelation 14, it speaks about Babylon. And the reason why it gives us Babylon is it was by no means a righteous city throughout Scripture, but it serves for us as a picture of the world and the system of the world, doesn't it? It serves for us as a picture of what the world looks like, not only then, but even now, because we know that the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Every culture has a has evil. Every culture has a system that is opposed to Christ, doesn't it? And that's when we really dive into Babylon, we see how it even plays out in our own world. The first thing about Babylon that we need to recognize is that Babylon itself normalizes sin, doesn't it? You don't have to go very far into our culture to know that that's true. To know that the narratives and the things that are being pushed on people is that Evil is good, and that good is evil. And here's why this is so dangerous. Because when Babylon convinces the people of the world, or in other words, the system of the world presses upon us that sin is just the average thing, that sin is okay, that it's really no big deal, even sometimes as Christians, we can, we can normalize sin in our own hearts, in our own life, can't we? and grow calloused in that way. There's a very real sense in which, yes, we know things are wrong, we know things aren't right, but everybody else is doing it. And then we try to justify our own things. And I don't need to fill in the blanks for anybody here. You know what those things are that you might be normalizing in your own heart. You might know the very things that you know that are wrong, but you just put them aside and don't pay much attention to it. And the sad reality is this, is that's what Babylon wants for the masses of people. And Babylon, I have to say, is doing a very good job of that, not just in our day, but through the whole scope of human history. There has never been a time where a culture hasn't normalized what is evil. You just have to go through the pages of the Old Testament, medieval period, even the first generation of the Christian church, evil upon evil, and yet many people calling it good. It's a sad reality that Babylon is still at war even in the world today. But here's the thing about Babylon. Babylon isn't just satisfied with you agreeing and normalizing sin. Babylon doesn't want to keep its adulteries to itself. But Babylon goes another step, doesn't it? It tries to lead people into sin. Not just merely agreeing and normalizing sin, but actually causing you to fall under its bondage and its power. And the, re the way this works, quite honestly, is this, that Babylon holds out to you what seems like will fulfill you, what, what actually speaks to your inclinations, your sinful desires, and it says, that is what will give you satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. And yet it's the very thing that's used to put you at odds with Christ. Sobering, isn't it? But at the same time, we can look at Babylon in that way and we can almost be a bit fearful, we can almost be a little bit unsettled, but Jesus knows about this, doesn't he? 
If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 18 very quickly, and I want to read one passage on this in particular. Jesus knows Babylon is leading the masses to sin, but he speaks some very strong words about it. Matthew chapter 18 and verses 6 through 7. Notice what Christ says here. He says this, But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Notice verse 7. Woe to the world, because the things that cause such people to sin, such things must come, but woe to them from whence they come. Notice what Jesus says here. Woe to the world. Woe to Babylon. Woe to the person who flaunts its adulteries before the people and leads the masses to sin. Christ is actually in that moment pronouncing a judgment against the world for its evil. And that's something that should grip us because when we think about the context of what Revelation 19 is speaking of, the return of Christ, that's when he's going to bring that judgment to completion, isn't it? Because Babylon is still active right now. Babylon is still leading the masses in this way. And Babylon even goes one step farther. Babylon also rages against the people of God. And in this moment, that's why we're awaiting Jesus to return, isn't it? Because when Babylon is raging against the people of God, here's what I'll just say about this. When somebody stands for the truth of God's word, when somebody says Babylon is wrong, good is good and evil is evil and stands according to the principles of scripture and God's character, Babylon seeks to destroy that person. You don't have to look very far into our culture. And I know I've said that before, but I just even think of you know, businesses that have been shut down because they don't agree with certain agendas and lifestyles. And, you know, it's almost, like, it's almost like there's an army that comes in after them. And you all know what I'm speaking of. You know, there was a, ba- a bakery in the States who took a stand against homosexuality, business closed. Babylon rages against God's people when they would say that truth is truth and that evil is evil. So what do we do with that? Well, Jesus said that he has pronounced a judgment on them, hasn't he? Jesus said that he's going to deal with that. Jesus said that woe to the world, the person who leads you into sin in that way, it said that it would be better for them to have a millstone tied tied around their neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Well, look at what Revelation 18.20 says about this because Christ doesn't leave any stone unturned with Babylon, does he? Revelation 18.20 says this, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Notice that, the way that Babylon treated the people of God. The way that Babylon oppressed God's people. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the depths of the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, notice this, never to be found again. Babylon is waging war, but Babylon's end is that Christ will 100% have victory over them. Isn't that encouraging? To think of the world and all of its devices and schemes that tries to lead you into sin, and Christ says, he's going to deal with it. 
that they're going to be brought down to nothing. That honestly is encouraging for the believer, but sobering for the person who is still under Babylon. Look, you have to see that. That Christ is going to have the victory in the end and that Babylon, though it may offer you everything, it gives you nothing. Moving on from Babylon, we see the next three and they're all covered in the same picture of the final battle. And I'm speaking, of course, of the armies of the world and the beast and the false prophet. And really the armies of the world, they are the allies of the beast and the false prophet. We're told in verse 17 and 18 that it's the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, their horses and riders, small and great. But what we find is if we deal with the beast and the false prophet first, the armies of the world makes more sense. So when we think about the beast and really who the beast is and what we need to know about him in this great conflict of the final battle, I want to point you to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. And this sheds light really on who the beast is, his identity, and what he does. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. It's kind of a striking and odd description, isn't it? But once again, Revelation is symbolic, and here's what Revelation is telling us about who the beast is. John says that he comes up out of the sea, giving an earthly imagery, meaning that the beast is of human nature. But then he gives the description of all of these wild animals. There's the leopard, the bear, and the lion. And when you think about those three animals, their natural instinct is vicious, isn't it? And since that instinct for them is vicious, especially when they're cornered or they're in a position where they need to defend themselves, look, he's only really trying to show here that the beast is evil. Utterly evil. Comes up out of the sea, he's of human nature, and he's evil, but here's the kicker. It also says that this beast receives its power from who? The dragon or the evil one. He's actually under the dominion and the power of Satan. And to really flesh this out a bit more for us so that we understand it, is the Apostle Paul addresses this same reality of this man, and it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to just read this description for you, and then just say a few things to help us understand a bit more about the beast. Verse 1 through 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying the day of the Lord has already come. So that's the problem. They think that they've already missed the second coming of Christ. But here's the reason why the Apostle Paul says it hasn't happened yet. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything 
that is called God or worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The beast or the man of lawlessness, or as others would say, the Antichrist, that's exactly what it is. It's a man who will come and he will profess himself to be greater than God and he will cause people to be under his rule, essentially leading to their destruction. And this is sobering because we have to ask this question. Well, can we really pinpoint who the beast is? And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I have all the answers on Revelation. I really don't. It is a vast and a difficult book. And this is a question that honestly the early church has asked many, many times, especially the first century church. They were under the assumption that the beast was Nero. I'm not sure how much history you know of Nero. I'll be brief, but essentially he was the Roman emperor. He brought mass persecution upon the church. He would have done more evil to them than we could even read of in the history books. For them, they would have thought that Nero was the beast, or really when we move into the Reformation period, and if you read any of those guys, there is a strong inclination for them that they saw the beast as the Church of Rome, or more specifically, the Pope. And the reason why they felt this way as well is that in that case with the Pope, or in the case with Nero, it was blasphemous in the sense that they desired people to worship them. And it posed a real threat to Christ and his people. But at the same time, the day of the Lord still hasn't happened. We're still awaiting that great day. And my best answer for you on who the beast is is this. They will be no different than Nero. They will be no different than the Pope in that respect. But I just, I don't have the answer for you. And part of that is this, is that we need to be ready and await that day and just trust that it's in the Lord's hand in that sense. But here's the other kicker on the beast, and this is something that I do want to address very quickly, because this is something that I always wondered about, and it ties into the false prophet. What is the deal with what the beast is trying to achieve and its mark? And to be very concise, we're told about the mark in Revelation 13, 16. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. Revelation 13, verse 16. This is what the beast does for people to pledge their allegiance to him. He also forced everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark that is on his right hand or his forehead. I'll just stop there. The early reader of Revelation knows the image here. A slave under this culture, whether they were a Jewish slave, they would have a leather band that was around their forehead, and some other slaves had marks on their wrist. And the whole point of that imagery is this. It was expressed, or it was known, who they belonged to. And what this picture is, is quite simply, who do you worship? Because we know that in Christ, if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, our worship is to God, and that we live our life for the glory of Jesus Christ. But for the person who rejects Christ, for the person who doesn't follow after him, for the person who would side with the world and its system and the beast, it's just shown in this very simple way. They don't worship Christ, but they worship evil. And we'll tie this in with the false prophet. Because when we look at the false prophet, his job 
is to convince the world to do what? To worship the beast. The false prophet comes in on the scene. Revelation 19.20 speaks about exactly what he's up to. Verse 20 says, But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, notice this, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The false prophet, very simply, is a cohort of the beast, so to speak. And his role and his purpose in all of this is to hide people from the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how does he do it? He says that there's miraculous signs. Not only is there miraculous signs and miracles, the miracles are counterfeit. There's delusions and false religion. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 through 12 talks about this. I won't read it, but that is what it's spoken of. And when we honestly take a quick look at that, we see that even the false prophet is at work today, isn't it? Think of all the miraculous signs that draw people in to something that might seem religious, something that might seem like it's got biblical substance to it, and yet it's completely void of the gospel. And a lot of it's just fake. Same thing with counterfeit miracles. Having people think that they're close with God and yet they're really far from Him. Making people think that they're close with God when really a lot of that stuff is just to get people there so they can get what they want. Not for the purpose of glorifying God. Or even think about false religion. We can look at it on two levels. False religion in our world today, we, we know the stats. We know that there are tons and tons of people who follow after religions that are completely opposed to Christ and the gospel, aren't there? We look at things like Hinduism, you know, Islam, all those different things, and they are all things that delude and hide people from Christ. But then there's an even dangerous sense in which false religion rears its head in another way. Think about all of the religions that would hold a Bible that has Genesis through Revelation, but they deny the fact that God is the triune God. They deny the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. All of these religions, like I said, that they seem close, and yet they don't have the real saving gospel. And people by the masses are being led to be deluded and being hidden from the glory and the, of the gospel of Christ. This is at work in our world today. You cannot go in any continent of the world and see that this is not happening. And when we think about it, and when we really take account of all of this, look, it seems hopeless, doesn't it? It can cause us to grow weary and faint-hearted. Because really, when you stack up the odds, and when you think about it, you have Babylon, you have the armies of the world who come alongside the beast and the false prophet. All of these, all of these people, they are working to wreak havoc into this world and to lead the masses under the judgment of God in that final conflict. But here's the good news from one perspective, but sad in another perspective. All of this is put away with in the climax of Christ's coming. And that is in the final battle. The final battle in Revelation 19 that's given to us, it is a passage, like I said, that is so intense, and yet we need to know it. Because it starts off very calmly, doesn't it? It starts off in verses 6, six through 9, where we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, where 
God, Christ is with his angels and he's also with his people. They're dressed in fine linen. And what this really means is this is when Christ returns and his people are gathered together with him. We're dressed in fine linen and then we're prepared to come with Christ when he returns to this world and sets everything straight. But while this is happening, what else is going on? The forces of evil, they are getting mobilized, aren't they? The beast, the false prophet, and the armies of the world. And when you think about it, it almost looks like the stage is being set for this great final conflict, this great final battle. And I liken it to watching a movie like Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. You just see everything mobilizing, that everything is going to come to a head. And it looks like something big is about to go down. Something big does go down, but not in the way that we would expect it. Because when you watch a movie like that, there is so much given to that battle scene. But when Christ returns, you don't read anything about an enemy sword being raised against Christ. You don't read anything about any momentary victory for the armies of the world or the beast or the false prophet. When you read about this passage and you read about what happens when Christ returns, it's over swiftly. It really is. The white, the white rider comes in. It says that his name is faithful and true. He's coming on a white steed with full power and authority. Not only is he coming on that white steed, the armies of heaven is following after him. It says that his eyes are like fire that there is many crowns on his head, that his name is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that there is a sword that comes out of his mouth, which is an imagery for his words. And it says that they strike down the nation. Do you ever think of that, that how powerful his words are in this instant? By the power of his word, he created the world. By the power of his word, he defeats his enemies. Amazing. Because when Christ comes in this way, when you look at the evil of the beast and the false prophet and the armies of the world, he's not coming to play games with them, is he? He's not coming to try to be victorious over them. When Christ comes, he's coming to conquer. When Christ comes, his victory is sealed and it's certain. He is coming to conquer and he is coming to destroy all of his enemies that are opposed to him. It says they're destroyed by the sword, which is his word, but also thrown into the lake of sulfur. That's intense. It also speaks about the birds coming to eat their flesh. What's this picture of? What's this imagery? This imagery is this, is that nobody opposed to Christ will stand. Nobody opposed to Christ will have victory on that day. Christ will have all of the victory. When we think about the intensity of this day, I want to point you to a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 34.10. This is how the Bible speaks of judgment. And this is speaking of Edom in its direct context. But notice Isaiah 34.10. Give you a moment to turn there. Isaiah 34.10 says, It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. 
From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one, notice this, will ever pass through it again. This speaks about how Christ, when he returns victorious in his judgment, it's final and it's over. Sobering, because Christ isn't sidestepping any amount of judgment at all. And when you think about it, and when you really allow this to grip you, when you allow yourself to think and ponder on eternity, can you imagine that day? Can you imagine the sorrow that's going to be on that day? I'm not joking, but when I think about it, I just think of, like I said earlier, my neighbors, my family members, anyone who would be opposed to Christ. This is, yes, there's victory. Yes, there's joy in the sense that we have passed from death to life. But look, God's heart towards sinners is not that they would fall to this end. It says that his desire is that all would come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. It says in Ezekiel, he takes no, no glory in the destruction of the wicked. Christ even said that he would gather his people like a hen would gather its chicks, but they would not. You see, sometimes we can have this idea of Revelation 19 and think Christ is just so ready to pour out the winepress of his wrath on humanity. But the reality is this. His desire is that it would not be that way. His desire is that you would come, that you would make yourself ready, that you would surrender to that king. Because when I even say something like this, I never want to give the impression that I think that's a great thing. It's great in the sense that God will be glorified for doing what is right, but his heart is that it wouldn't be that way for you. But here's the good news. Revelation 19, like I said, it's not all about judgment. It doesn't end on that note of Christ is going to come, destroy everything, and that's the end. The good news is this, is that there is victory for his people, and secondly, that there is terms of peace for those who are not yet his people. So that leads us to our second theme of God being glorified in salvation. The first one is in Revelation 19.1. Let's go back to this verse. We read it at the very beginning, but it's so powerful. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong, notice this, to our God. Though the white steed is coming in such fury, in power and authority, salvation belongs to our God. It says in the Bible that we have passed from death, which means judgment, to life. And since we have passed from death to life, we also need to be reminded of the fact that it's God who saved us by the work of His Son and by the power of His Spirit. And that when Christ returns, every single one who belongs to Him will be with Him and spared from this final day. You are held by His power, not anything in and of yourself. You will not fall to the defeat of this coming and conquering King. But God will have victory over the evil one and you will spend eternity with Him. Does that not encourage your heart? When you think about all of the different things that happens in this world, when you think about 
the reality that this day could come at any moment, at any time, that you have nothing to fear because your salvation belongs to the Lord and His power, that gives me hope because it doesn't matter how things play out, if it plays out exactly line by line, or I have the right view of how everything's supposed to unfold. What matters is that I'm held by the power of God. Are you held by the power of God this morning? Not only is our salvation secure because it's by God's power, but we're told that we're invited by our King. Notice Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, and like loud pearls of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Look, rejoice and be glad. This is how he's speaking of his people. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, living for Christ. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. It stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Notice verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited by the King. That's the hope that you have. But then the next one is the armies of heaven. And just to make that connection quickly and clear for you, it says that his army that follows him is dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's how it speaks of the linens we receive at this marriage supper. And when you're in Christ's army fighting for his cause, there is not a single enemy sword that strikes his people. He doesn't lose anyone. 100% secure in his victory. Praise the Lord. That encourages the heart. What better hope do you have? And the answer is you don't. But on Revelation 19, we have to end with a warning. Because Jesus, just as sure as the sun rises and falls, he's returning. We don't know the time or the hour, but it's certain, it's soon, and it's victorious. And it says that we will see that glorious appearing. It will be glorious for the people of God, but it will be far from glorious to the person who's under his judgment. I want to speak to you for a moment if that's you. If you have not made yourself ready, if you see that this is the truth of God's word and yet you have believed it. Look, when we looked at Christ coming on that white steed, the victory certain it's sealed. And if you're at odds with him, if you're not at peace with him, you're in a vulnerable spot. I want to ask you, what has kept you from surrendering to the king? Is it Babylon in the world? Is it the love of sin and all the things that is opposed to Christ? Maybe the false prophet has you. Maybe you're believing in a message that is not the gospel. Look, the gospel is that Christ died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And the reason he did that was because your sin placed him there, and yet Christ stood in your place 
that you could be forgiven. Anything under that or anything over that, it's not the gospel. Are you trusting in the gospel this morning? Have you made yourself ready? Because on that final day, if you enter it in conflict with Christ, if you are not on his side, if you are opposed to him, his judgment will stand. His judgment will stand. And though he wouldn't have it that way, by not surrendering to the king, you've sealed yourself in that. Look, Christ is offering terms of peace this morning, isn't he? You can stand not in opposition to Christ, but alongside of him. And all you have to do to come to terms of peace with this soon coming and conquering king is surrender. To realize that your sin, whether it's your false hopes that you're trusting in, your, your self-perceived righteousness, anything like that at all, that you literally lay it down and leave it behind you and you go to Christ and you trust in Him and His victory and in that alone. That is the only thing that will save. That's the only hope. Outside of Christ, you, like I said, fall under His judgment. But He wouldn't have it this way. And the only way it'll end up this way is if you do not surrender. Let me point you to one last verse to wrap this up. Revelation chapter 22. Just the first line of verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Are you ready or are you in conflict with Christ? And if you want to talk about that this morning, myself or Corey or any of the elders here, we are more than willing to talk to you about this. But you cannot afford to be at odds with Christ and not be ready on that day. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is urgent and it's clear. But Lord, it's also sobering to just think about how even though you're going to come in victory, it will not be victory for those who are in opposition to you. And the sad reality this morning is that there are people who are outside of your victory. There are people who are opposed to you. And all the while you are offering your mercy. You're offering the way of escape. You're offering your terms of peace. Lord, it is a fearful thing for me to even be up here this morning and just think that there are people who will hear your gospel week in and week out or even just a few times in their life. And yet on this great day of conflict, when they stand before you, they will be lost to the lake of fire forever. God, would you be merciful? 
cause your face to shine towards us and that by the power of your spirit, you would cause us to look at eternity not, not just in a cavalier way, but in a way that we would have urgency and that we would prepare ourselves and that we would be ready. Lord, thank you so much. You've been so kind and gracious towards us. And though you are coming in this way, you truly do love your people. So God, I pray that our heart would be encouraged and that we would live for your sake and for your kingdom. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God from Thank you, Tim. <clears throat> when we talk of Babylon and the judgment that will befall it, it's, it's so easy to abstract what that is. That it's just an idea or, or something bad that one day is going to happen. And all throughout the Bible and all throughout uh, even our day today, when people think of the final judgment that is coming, the one thing everyone is absolutely sure of is that they'll be all right. 
That when it comes, they'll be okay. In the Old Testament, they said, let the day come when God is going to destroy all of those bad people. Not knowing that they themselves were under the judgment of God and outside of Christ. It's a danger for everyone if they are not secure in Christ Jesus. And the thing about Babylon that, 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 that we sometimes have a difficult time to, to get a hold of is it's not just an idea or a government or some system, but Babylon is a city filled with people. It's a city filled with all of those who do not call upon the name of the Lord or know Him. So if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, you are living in Babylon. There are only two cities in that book of Revelation. Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Those who belong to the beast and to the ways of the world and those who belong to Christ and His kingdom. And the one refrain over Babylon over and over and over again in the book of Revelation is that Babylon is fallen and that its time is short. If you are outside of Christ, you're in what John Bunyan called living in the city of destruction. But there is a city whose gates are salvation. The New Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, the church built up of God's people. The invitation is to all who would come to pass through those gates into the city of the Lord. And if you are this morning in the city of destruction, don't spend any more time there for the hour will come quickly and you will not know when that city will be destroyed. But the gates of heaven are open wide. The invitation has gone far and wide throughout the land. In Matthew 22, the Lord sends His servants everywhere, into the cities, into the streets, to the ends of the earth, to call people to come in to His kingdom and be saved. And so if you're not in Christ this morning, confess your sins. Lord, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me and enter in to His salvation. Close with Romans chapter eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgment, and how inscrutable are His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forevermore. Amen. Amen.